evening and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan. And I'm Laura. Uh, we'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight we are fortunate enough to be speaking with Pete and Megan Rutherford from Stanford Pole Herefords and Working Kelpies. Pete and Megan will be picking who they think has asked the best question tonight and they will win a bag of Enduro Plus high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Hey guys, how are you going? Good, how are you Laura? Daniel? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, thanks. How's your day in uh, sunny Blaney? Freezing. <laughs> so cold. We talked about about five degrees today. Rain have sleeted and wind all day. It was lovely. Sounds like mm. a good day for uh, in front of the fireplace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we did have a fire going. <laughs> so you need it all day long and all night pretty much, wouldn't you? Definitely. <laughs> Starts at the end of April and it goes out the end of October. Mm. So, you're right. Far I was going to say, you want to jump in? Tell us a little bit about yourselves, where each of you are from, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I grew up on a mostly sheep property in southwestern Queensland, so um, small town of Bolland. So it's pretty, um, oh, not super isolated, but a lot more than Blaney. Um, so I went to primary school there, but then had to go to boarding school because it's an hour to the nearest high school. So I went to boarding school in Toowoomba and then I went to uni uh, in Armada where I met Peter and studied ag. And then we lived up around the, that area for a year or so. I lived at Warialda and Pete lived at Gyra and then ended up coming down to Blaney. So um, I've I've worked in agriculture my whole life. Even when I finished uni, I was working in ag up around Warialda. And then when I moved here, I was working in Orange for an agricultural research company until I had my third child. And then I um, stopped working there because three kids is a lot. <laughs> um, we, had, like, we have a lease block and we bought our own farm a couple of years ago so we run a lot of our own stock and pete also helps out his family a lot as well yeah so i'm born and bred blaney seventh generation on this farm oh wow been here a little while started out my great 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 grandfather was james rutherford and he was ceo and owner of common co coaches might have heard yeah, of wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, the farming back then, I think, was just a bit of a byproduct of the of the mail runs with the coaches and yeah. and all that. And and uh, yeah, they 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 sort of got this place going. It actually started out with Gilmore's and the Rutherfords actually married into it originally. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they they sort of expanded it and and got it going in that respect. Um, we only recently moved into this house. Previous to that, eight years, we were living in a little cottage down the road here on this farm, and it was built in the 1830s, 1820s or 30s or something. It's the oldest house in the sort of the Bathurst district, and it's, yeah, part of the part of Stanford property, so we've been here a little while. Um, I sort of, yeah... Born here, went to school here. After school, I sort of went west for a bit, went down to west to Hay for a year. 
too many sheep over there, so I went north. <laughs> a few years in the Northern Territory. Uh, started uni, decided I was going to do uni remotely and decided that that was not very much fun at all. We worked a lot of hours and going back at night time on the computer, on the school computer, trying to get uni done. It's just not much fun. So next three years went to Armidale. Megan would reckon that'd be the best decision of your life. Yeah. Yep. Three years in Armidale. Ended up, ended up getting a, a job in Gyra after that. Spent about a year up there on a on a pretty decent size merino, and uh, it was Angus cattle up there actually. Operation about twelve hundred cows and five thousand ewes. Before coming down here and starting up a contracting and farm leasing operation that we're still running today. Uh, that's awesome, man. The history there, seven generations in years. How many years do you reckon that is? Your well, the, like the, the original Gilmores who, who sort of built Barthampton Homestead, I think I think they've been here since probably the 1830s or 40s. Yeah, right. And, and that's on the Rutherford side. But even on Mum's side, the Smiths, they came over as convicts and, and came pretty quickly over to Bathurst in chains, probably working for the Rutherfords. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got a long history in the, in the district. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, heaps of family history. Uh, but, yeah, anyway, there's sort of been – there's plenty of books about the, the Cobham Co. rise and fall of that empire. There's there's not much left of it, I can assure you of that. Our little block is, is what's left of it between, between death taxes. When when Pa's dad died, that, that cost him about half the whole operation and, and just um, everyone had a lot of kids back then and – so we've got split about six ways every generation. And anyway, we've got what's left of it, which is good. And speaking of the the next uh, saga there with uh, your own three little girls now there as well. So they, uh, yeah, they, yeah. they hang around and keep going. Like, <laughs> and um, have you ever considered doing it? Obviously, you're both um, born and bred into the livestock industry. Have you ever considered doing anything else? I haven't. No, I've known since nearly kindergarten. I thought I I knew that I wanted to come back and and be a farmer and like I didn't like obviously dogs. I I didn't know anything about dogs back then. My dad always had them, but no, I just wanted to run cattle, run the farm, and make it bigger and better. And nothing's changed. So I come from a definitely a sheep background. Like I used to um love reading so there's a bit of um history on the kirby side as well uh, dad's grandpa was the first one to try and take sheep up to normanton which turns out was a terrible idea <laughs> um, not not a great they definitely more suited to cattle up there but um so my family settled in the fallen area for since um before then and not just around, around there like around colorado and all just at northern New South Wales, Southern Queensland. So, yeah, I've just always liked reading about that um, in our own family history. And then I've grown up on a farm. And so we had um, 20,000 sheep growing up. We didn't really have many cattle. Um, Dad traded a few cattle occasionally. But, 
I used to love sharing time. I'd always hoped that it was in the school holidays because I was at boarding school, so obviously I wasn't home during the term. And so I think Dad tried to make it during the holidays too so we could have free labour. But um, we loved it. Uh, so I'd go be out on the motorbike all the time, mustering and doing all the sheet work. And uh, Dad didn't have... I mean, he always had dogs, but they uh, certainly weren't as well, like very well trained. They were just um, typical station dogs, but they helped. But uh, yeah, I, we definitely put a bit more emphasis on getting a bit better handle on our dogs than my parents ever did. So. And, yeah. and what about from your uni degree? You said you were doing something with research, Megan? Yeah, so I did livestock science me and then when I moved to so when I was up at uh Warialda, I was working for a company um and I did sort of half office half um on the farm and they they did a lot of uh growing cattle um in a half feedlot half um pasture situation so I did a lot of um feed conversion ratios and stuff like that in their like um, per paddock and to make sure that cattle were meeting their weight gain targets and all that sort of stuff. And then when I moved down to Orange, um, I worked for that company for seven years, the one in Orange. So uh, we did um, product registration. So animal, all animal health products like drenches and less sides and vaccines, did all the research trials to see if they worked and to get them registered. So we were a private company and just worked for all the big chemical companies who paid us per trial. So it was pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, wow. And Pete, being around livestock for so long as a young whippersnipper and different properties and moving around a bit, have you noticed a difference in the way stock are handled now um, compared to where they were and in, in different parts around the country? Oh, I think it, it varies greatly place to place. Every, every, if you sort of get around and work on a few different places, there's, there's people who, are, who put a lot of emphasis on their livestock handling and then people who just pump the numbers out and i think um there's probably always been places that really had a lot of respect for their livestock and and their and their places and really did things well and then there's a lot of places especially um some of the western places the company places where i first started working out of school it's just it's it's a bit of a culture of young kids go there straight out of school they do one year as a gap year before uni and and that's been going on for so long that the company's probably the management just doesn't worry about putting too much work into into the young jackaroos because they know they're only going to have them for a year so yeah it's just pumping numbers through there certainly in queensland and northern territory work, working with more brahmin and and santa katrina's type cattle there's more of a necessity to to put more of a handle and, and breaking in your wieners up there because you're running mobs in mobs of a thousand cows and calves and you're all on horseback with a helicopter sort of just punching cattle into you. And if you haven't educated your cattle when they're when they're young, you're gonna have a hell of a time mustering a hundred thousand acre paddock with mad cattle that just have no respect for people, horses or fences. So you put a lot more emphasis on those bigger northern places into breaking in your cattle before you actually let them into the paddock than down here. Down here, you wean your calves, 
a lot of us do educate them to dogs, but it's mostly just put them in their paddock, block them up until they're, and just hold them for maybe an hour and then let them go. Whereas up there, you work with them in the yards for an hour, you let them out, you block them up, hold them, walk them 15 Ks to the paddock, then hold them for another hour. By the time you let them go, they just all sit down to their cud. Yeah. And you're not only teaching them to be quiet, you're teaching them to walk, walk briskly, not just dawdle, but don't run. So as soon as, as soon as they know that something's happening, they just, they just stride out. And it is in there, you know, that breed of cattle's blood to walk faster, but you, you do put a lot of emphasis on quieting them down, then getting them to walk, then getting them to walk briskly. And then once you get to where you're going, just settle. Whereas down here, the cattle are quieter, the paddocks are, are smaller. You see the cattle uh, the, all the time? Whereas... There's not such a big a necessity to, to break your cattle in like up there. And it's just horses for courses. Like when you've got six jackaroos on motorbikes on a, on a big sheep farm down southwestern New South Wales, you sort of... By the time you've run a mob of sheep for a kilometre, they've stopped running and they're just walking anyway. So, you know, as long as they will continue on walking, they're pretty right. Whereas whereas for us, by the time we mob them up in our, in our 40, 50 acre paddocks, we're pretty much at the gateway. So yeah, it's all just, it's all so different. Everywhere you go is different rather than, rather than over time. I think it's more of a, Horse courses on different places and different people. So these days you guys are obviously you know, raising your family and working your own place. Are you doing anything else as well? I'm doing heaps. Heaps. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, all the all the country that the, on this family place, my dad runs that. We don't actually run any stock on the family place. I help out, and we we live in the house here, and I just help out whenever dad rings up, and that sort of pays out rent. But uh, as far as our own business goes, we run we run our own stock on probably half a dozen different lease blocks and adjustment blocks all around the district. And also have our contracting business on the side of that. And then sometimes I might do four or five days a week contracting. Sometimes I'll go two or three weeks without doing work for anybody else. Yeah. And uh, and then just help out dad whenever he asks. Well, cool. And um, obviously there you guys are on your, with your Herefords. Um, but when handling different breeds of stock, do you believe they should be handled differently? And how do you... Do you approach a job the same way? Oh, you you gotta you gotta approach any class of stock with an open mind. Like it, it just it depends on what like what their upbringing is or how they've been handled. Like you just sort of gotta take it as it comes. But uh, pole herpes are quiet. Like that's the whole yep. reason for having them. So, um, but yeah, they are a lot quieter than generally than Angus or other cattle, so. Yeah, just, um, you just never know what you're gonna get. Sometimes you go to, 
I mean, most people around here are running Angus. Most places I go, either composites or Angus cattle. And sometimes you start up the motorbike and the cattle four paddocks over, just heads come up and they just run. And then you're lucky if the fence will hold them. And then yeah. other places, you you got four dogs with you and, and you've got to get right up to them and you're working just to get them to stand up from under the shade of the trees. So it's not necessarily different breeds. And obviously you don't see many, if any, Brahmin cattle down yeah. here. So we're working with predominantly British bred cattle, which are all fairly similar. But you just got to... You go in the paddock and you sort of just assess the situation wherever you are and just try and do the least amount necessary to get the job done, I guess. And, um, apply, apply a small amount of pressure to get movement. If they move, happy days. If they don't, add more, let another dog off, more dogs, get over there, give them a hand, like just whatever you got to do to get the job done, I guess. But just, um, yeah, it's, every mob's different on every different every different place. Absolutely. And you both mentioned before about um, your parents having dogs that were around, but maybe not uh, some of the handiest. Do you guys remember your first dogs? Yep. So my first dog was um, a very paddocky type of dog. Like, she was a really nice um, bitch. And because she was paddocky, she was pretty easy to train because um, they just don't tend to upset their stock as much, and um, and they're they're just easy, like they're easier to work. But um, I ended up selling her because when push came to shove, um, she just didn't have enough work in her, and um, so she she was a really handy bitch, but just wasn't quite what I wanted. So sorry to did you have her when you're in Queensland or when you come down to New South Wales? Uh, no. So I, um, when I was working, so like up at home, we like, like I said, dogs for mum and dad weren't, um, a, like weren't a big thing. So they had dogs. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't say any of the dogs up there were mine. Like I, like if I used a dog in the yards, they definitely weren't my dogs. They were mum and dad's dogs. Um, and then even when I was working at Warrialda, um, cause I was half in the office and half, um, out on the property uh only a couple of people on the place had dogs and we just did all the like we'd be processing a lot of cattle because obviously they feedlotted a lot um so uh we mostly just had two people doing the work and they just didn't have a lot of requirement for dogs um i guess because they they had a relatively high turnover rate as well and so they always have new people coming on and it's just a bit hard to know what people's dogs are like if you're um got new staff coming on all the time so i never really had a dog until peter wrote me into it <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah well, my introduction to dogs was dad originally always just had a heap of give them to me dogs he never i like, just whatever he had it, People would have accidental joinings and people just swap pups and give pups away. He'd never buy a dog. And he had a lot of pretty ordinary dogs, some very handy ones. He had a, I remember an old red and tan bitch he had called, called Freddo and he just found her on the highway. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the back of a cattle truck or something and, or a sheep truck and she was unreal. He, like he, um, I think he put an ad in the paper and 
and had her tied up out the front and no one come and picked her up for a few weeks. So I thought, oh, yeah. we'll see what we've got. And, and she, was, she was an unreal bitch, I remember, back then. But, he, yeah, he just had anything and everything, all different breeds and no real handle on them. Just, just go back, fetch them up, come here, come behind. Like that, was, that was pretty much the, the control he had on them, just enough to get the job done. And sometimes it was good and, and sometimes I, I remember as just a little kid sitting on the fuel tank of the, of the motorbike while we were going around the paddocks and learned all the swear words. <laughs> Yelling at dogs, yelling at cattle, and in the end, I think he just got the shits with it. And he was pretty fortunate, actually. One of his, like, still to this day, one of his really good mates is Brett Goodacre, who who had Sunbeam Kelpie stud, based very heavily on Capri lines, but had some very good dogs in his own right. And and Dad was taking cattle up to just to a field days at Hungerford. And Brett went with him and he was demonstrating some dogs and end the weekend, Dad said, Right, I'll have that dog and that bitch. The dog was Sunbeam Seal, the bitch was Lucy out of the same litter. And it that just revolutionized dogs on this place. He um he bought them, I think they were three hundred bucks each, which was extortionate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he bought a book. Um, I think it was Scott Lithgow's working working dogs, the training book. He read it cover to cover, and he and he implemented it, and he trained them. And from then on, geez, it was all about the dogs here. Yeah, <laughs> it, um, and they were good dogs. That dog Seal, it was it was tough as nails, real big, strong looking black and tan dog, and very rough on sheep, but very good on cattle. <laughs> And um, and the bitch Lucy, she was, she was just she was just nice. She was, she was probably a little bit sticky eyed, if anything, but just really easy to have her on. Real nice natured bitch, and and um, yeah, all of a sudden instead of dad just yelling and swearing every time he went out to do a job, it was just a pleasure. And he'd go out there and it'd be it'd be good fun. <laughs> Anyway, he, uh, he he bred that bitch, that Lucy, back to another one of the Good Acre dogs, and and he ended ended up with a bitch called Alice, and she probably to this day is one of the best dogs that have been on this farm. Just so strong, would just walk up to anything, just nice and calm. If it didn't move, bite it on the face, and then just release the pressure and just let him walk off and. And that really just started Stanford Kelby's. That was that was the start of Stanford Kelby's. And those, and like that, I've got a couple of pedigrees here, but like that, that original dog Seal. He was by Capri Blue. Out of a bitch called Sunbeam Jenny, who was by Erinella Alf, who we're going back a long time now. But I think Brett won New South Wales stock dog of the year with that dog. Back then, when he was doing a bit of trying, when he was getting right into it, and, and it just goes to show you get well-bred dogs, you get you get good results, and and Dad sort of kept that going, and he's still got those lines to this day, and he's still breeding very good dogs, and I sort of just hung on the coattails of that, and, and just sort of try to keep it going and, and take it further, 
and uh, and started trialing them and and yeah and so so my first dogs were a couple of dogs that were given to me by dad and I've still got old Stubby he's out front there he's 16 years old he's deaf blind incompetent and anyway I got him rugged up in a in a in a dog right dog rug and he's sitting there he lives in the garage and, loving life yeah had a yeah and, and just i just went from there had a bitch called had a pretty rough and tough bitch called piglet that he gave me as well and um yeah she loved she loved biting that vein on the front of sheep's faces and just <laughs> making them bleed terribly at shearing crutching time when they're coming in the shed and, but uh yeah as, as as rough as she was gee, she did a lot of work for me that bitch and I bred her a couple of times, but never really got fantastic results. I don't have any of her pups left, but all all of my dogs are based on those same lines that Dad started. And we've just gone from there. And so these days, what style of dog are you guys after? Uh, first and foremost, just uh, just a dog that I, I like to have around. Temperament. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Like, I, I, I sort of, whether you call it temperament or nature, like they've obviously got to have a nice nature, but I think temperament is a little bit different to just having a friendly dog that likes being around. Because just that I like a dog that is friendly but doesn't need a pat. They'll come up for a pat, but they don't need it. Yeah. And just saying, I can have it. If I, if I take a dog to somebody else's farm or to a trial at a show where heaps is going on, it'll be 14, 15 months old, his first trial, and it's just sitting loose on a lead and quiet and calm. And just, I just don't like a dog that gets overwhelmed by things. So just a nice, calm confidence that's just easy to have around. So that's, that's first and foremost what I'm looking for. And second to that, I just like, a dog that's going to be strong, calm, and quiet on cattle. Yeah. That's, yeah. And does that differ for you, Megan? Uh, yeah, so I, like, I won't keep a dog if it um, work cattle because I don't have a lot of dogs in my team because I don't do as much work, so they've got to be strong enough. And um, I prefer them to be silent because I think that um, bark can sort of make cattle a bit jumpy um so i'd want them to be strong but i also want them to be um correct like i'm not really willing to keep short dogs because i want um like i said i don't have a very big team so i want a dog that does everything i want to be able to go and um master sheep and cows in the paddock and then do yard work with it as well so i mean dogs all have strengths and weaknesses but um just sort of roughly all around and as long as it's got the strength behind it as well yeah. Tell us a little bit about your current team. Yeah, well, we've got a few dogs on at the moment. Uh, probably more than I'd like to have. But, um, yeah, while they're all similar, they've all got their strengths and weaknesses, and they're just um, – it's just a team of dogs that I can, I can pretty much – if someone rings me up, come and do a job, I can just, I can confidently say, yep, let's go do it. Like, whether it's getting cows and calves in for marking, drenching thousands of sheep day, day in, day out, 
for a week or or go and muster some ewes and lambs off, off a bit of steep country, I'm pretty like I'm pretty confident with the dogs I've got that I can get nearly any job done with the dogs I've got. And uh, like they're all they're all related, but they all they all are slightly different in their own ways. So I've got um well, I mean, I, I've got so long quads out of the same litter. They're probably my main two dogs now. They're three-year-old and and um, they work well together because they just, they are so similar. They they work. Just, they're not. None of my dogs are real wide-working dogs, but just those two. They they keep their distance out and they seem to just you cast them out and they're not they're not mad on the head. They don't like. They're probably not. Like they're, they're probably not as much on the head as what a lot of people would like. I can tolerate that because they just, I can cast them out. They seem to find that pressure spot in the mob and they're just smart enough to figure out the direction that we're going. Like if I've got them on the back of the two-wheeler and I head out and I cast them out, they figure out real fast what direction we're going and they just point them in that direction. They keep them going. I don't have to talk to them too much and they're not overworking them. They're not underworking them and... But when push comes to shove, they, they can go up a couple of gears as well. So plenty of bite and cows and calves, especially the solo. She's probably one of the strongest, toughest bitches I've owned. And and she'll light up in a drenching race as well. We can go out and with a merino crossbreed composite use. Like she'll, just, she'll back that race up the front, bark, top knot, come back through. And, and she'll have them jumping all over each other, trying to get away from her up that race. And, but then just then just shut down completely as soon as the job's done. So she's a real nice bitch to have around and, and quads is only probably one or two levels behind her. I've probably got a, a better handle on quads, but yeah, Solo is definitely my top my top dog in the team at the moment. I've got Kelly. I've had Kelly. She was probably my first, well, I, like my first really good bitch or dog really for me. She's eight now. She's sort of slowing down. She still she still works full time, but yeah, she's she's a bit happier to play second fiddle to some of those other dogs when the especially in the yard. She's more than happy just to stay holding up the the back the back end of the mob and, and let those younger dogs get in and do the heavy work nowadays. <laughs> still a very good, reliable paddock dog, but yeah, you just gotta she's getting to the age where you've got to ask her twice now, so just let her sort of do her own thing a little bit now. And I've just always got so many young dogs coming through. They, they very rarely make the team, but they're nearly always coming to work. And so I've got a lot of dogs between that six and 18 month old mark coming through. Yep. And then, yeah. Uh, so I've only got four dogs in my team. One is a five month old pup, so clearly not going to work. Uh, and then I've got Spur, who's 10 months old, who I have a lot of time for. I actually started, uh, he, he was helping me out a bit the other day, drafting the Rams out. Um, and then I've got Remy, who, um, Remy's, uh, she's a really nice paddock dog as well, and she'll work in the yards. Um, but I'll, I will end up selling her once uh, Spur fills the spot, like he's only 10 months old, so we just can't. Uh, can't really work in the paddock that well yet and um, and then obviously Mars is my main dog 
Um, so yeah, he's I use him for everything and I was it was a bit tough over summer actually. Remy got a grass seed and Mars hurt himself, so I was using Peter's yeah. dogs for a bit, which aren't entirely obedient to me, but anyway, gotta do what you gotta do. So yeah. So do you guys at times take each other's dogs to work or do you have your own team and that's that? Yeah, I, I take my when I can get him. <laughs> I got told last week because uh, Peter was working composites contracting and I was um, pulling all our rams out on our own place. Uh, he was like, oh, what do you need him for? And I was like, well, you know, it's only my main dog. <laughs> take my own dog to work. So. Yeah, Mars, Mars is a pretty special dog here. He's he would just, he would do anything and everything any on the farm, and he's uh, if I've got any any real hard work, cow and calf work to do, he like he's he's the enforcer, and uh, yeah, you put him and Solo together, and and you got a like a real strong base for cow and calf work, and then like um, especially working composite use if you're doing sort of a few big days working composites. Uh, he'll just he'll he's good to take. He's just a real strong, tough dog, and and he doesn't take anything from those big nasty ewes. So he's he's pretty handy and boosts the confidence of some of the younger dogs. When you, I try, I try and rotate the dogs around and work. If I'm working at least two at a time, try and have a sort of an older dog with a younger dog at the same time. But try and just give them an hour or two and then swap them around. So if I can take Mars with one of my younger dogs and then. Solo with a younger dog and quads with a younger dog and maybe Kelly with a younger dog and just keep on just try and keep the team fresh. Yeah. So that if I'm if I'm working with somebody else on the hourly rate, just the dogs are peaking all the time and just and we're getting a lot of work done. So they're getting their money's worth and my dog's getting plenty of work and, and we're just getting the work done rather than rather than just have the same two dogs out all day. You're getting a lot of work done up until smoker time and then after that, you notice people are walking up, pushing the front sheep up the front of the race, and and helping the dogs out a lot. I just try and I just try and keep the dogs fresh and rotating, and and just getting as much work done as I can for that client for whatever time I'm there. So, yeah, if it, if it is a hard job, I'll I'll definitely if Megan's not using him, I'll take Mars and and <laughs> put Miles under his belt as well. So I don't often use Pez dogs, but like I said, over summer when I had uh, both my dogs out, I will. Or if I'm um, doing a lot of, dep it depends what's happening. Like often if I'm doing a lot of yard work, he's probably off contracting for someone else. So you sort of just have to split the dogs. But um, if, you know, it depends what, because often through summer dogs might be out with injury or just, so you just sort of got to do take whoever you can and do the best you can but um i try not to take them because they don't really listen to me that well so. yeah. and which comes to the next thing away from work do you find that do you keep your packs separate and megan you look after your pack and pete look after yours that was actually one of mum's questions from yeah. earlier she asked me to ask you guys that yeah yeah um even like, with feeding, do you just keep you know megan yeah. her dogs pete oh, really Sometimes we're really funny about you have to feed your dogs and they'll work. No, I don't think that's the case at all. So whoever, I mean, mostly Peter feeds dogs because usually the time of day that you feed dogs is um, at night time for kids. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, depends. Like 
what's happening. But no, I don't find that at all. Our dogs all are out together and live in the same area and I feed his dog sometimes and he feeds my dogs a lot of times. And um, my dogs are more obedient to me and his are more obedient to him because whoever owns them is the one who trains them and takes them to work. And I mean, feeding is feeding, but yeah. There's no truth at all in whoever, feed, whoever feeds, feeds a dog owns a dog because, yeah, I feed the dogs 90% of the time. <laughs> I'm the one letting them out in the morning. I'm the one putting them away at night, feeding them, everything. As soon as Megan walks through the door. They don't even go to him. <laughs> even, even, the, even her four-month-old pups just won't even look at me and are all over her. So, I don't know, just they know – the dogs know who owns them. Even if you've only put them on sheep a couple of times as a pup, they just know. So also, I try to like bond with my dogs. Like I might not. Um, I mean, ideally, it's it's all time for me. But ideally, yeah, you would be the one to let them out every day and do all that. But um, it doesn't always work that way. Like trying to get kids to school and trying to get to work, and it's all pretty full on. So if I don't feel like I'm spending much time with my dogs, I'll take time out and go like spend time with them separately, especially young dogs. Like you've got to bond with them and it's really important. So obviously it works. And a bit earlier, um, you mentioned about dropping, or Pete mentioned dropping um, solo and quads out and they just find those spots um, of a mob, those pressure points. How important is trainability or billability, biddability to you over something natural that just does that? Well, I mean, it's important. It's definitely very important. If your dog's not going to listen to you, it can be the most natural dog in the world taking them in the wrong direction. It's not going to be no not going to be very helpful, is it? And and if it, sometimes the the pup that looks so good at four months old and you drop it in and it's just pinging around and it's blocking everything, there's a brick wall and nothing gets past it. Often they're just so annoying to take to work, <laughs> even up until they're like three years old. Is you nearly just have to work that type of dog by itself because you're just spending so much of your attention on that dog, keeping it where you want to because they just won't let the stock move move away. They're just so mad on the head that you just got to, you can't take your eyes off it and, and bringing it back. So you might say that that's a really natural heading stock and you'll never ever lose your stock with that dog, but. I don't get along with that type of dog that well because yep. I just, I just, I just want to enjoy working my stock and have a dog that just understands the job at hand. So I'd, I'd probably prefer a dog that is a bit plainer, but just understands job at hand. And if it, if that means that it's not as not so keen on the head as other dogs and doesn't cover as well as other dogs, I can put up with that because I can just cast it out and it'll just sort of it, you cast it out on a mob of scattered stock, sheep or cattle, and it mobs them together. And then once you go in the right direction, it understands the job at hand and it just keeps them ticking along in that direction. I can, that's the sort of, that's the sort of style of work that I want to do. And I just got to sit somewhere towards the tail on the wing, whatever, just point the motorbike in the direction that we're going and, and the dog does the rest without me having to tell the dog what to do too often. That's what I'd, that's what I'd sort of prefer. And 
and whatever you call a natural dog, maybe you just call them natural driving dogs rather than natural heading dogs. I don't know, but they've just got to understand the job at hand for me. And then if you if you if they do sort of work your way too far up towards the head, and you can just give them a quick whistle, call them back, and they just come back. So nice and biddle in that regard. You're not yelling and screaming at them to, to come back behind all the time. And, and probably if you do have a dog that's mad on the head, maybe you just got to do a lot more training with it when it's young than what maybe I do. Or maybe I just do a different type of training. I just don't get along with them anyway. Maybe complicated is the term you're looking for. More complicated dogs. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah. So you guys have obviously had some great success with auctions, um, selling dogs. How do you see the value of them going with more auctions coming up and it's a good thing for the industry is probably what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, for, like for the, for the dog industry, it can only be a good thing, can't it? It's, yeah. Uh, I guess it's keeping the, the value of the working dogs and what we're doing, making it, making it all worth it in the end. I mean, it's always going to be worth it because um, I don't think anybody really likes training a dog just to sell it, but you're always, you're always training your dog because you want to keep it, but sometimes just don't make – sometimes you get out to a certain point and they just don't pass that next test and you decide that you're going to move them on. And if you've put all that work into them and you end up getting good money for it, well, it's pretty, it makes it a pretty enjoyable experience. But if you put all those hundreds, if not thousands of hours into that dog and, and you get next to nothing for it, well, you're probably going to be a bit more sour on it and not be prepared to to train the dogs to that level in the first place so i think people are um, starting to really realize the value of them as well like uh you like i'll go out with my three kids to work and master a paddock and and i don't need someone else to help me like i'll be in the ute with my dogs and do the job whereas um Previously, like in the past, you would have a lot more staff available, but the cost of staff is just so much now and uh, they're not available. <laughs> There's no one yeah. around to help. So I think that people are finally realising the value of good dogs uh, and if they're well-trained and actually doing the job that they want, then, yeah, they should make good money. I, I actually think that in real terms, the value of working dogs hasn't gone up at all. When you when you look back, say five or six years ago, when the first dogs started making ten thousand, and, and those bigger auctions were topping at ten thousand, oh wow, that is so much money. But back then, people were getting a dollar eighty, two dollars was an unreal price for a feed of steer. So yeah, and then, and, then, and maybe and maybe that was back when probably crossbred lands were just starting to like break the two hundred dollar threshold. And everyone's thinking, holy, wow, that is such a good price for those cattle and such a good price for those sheep. And, and they're paying 10000 like the better farm, like the more successful farmers are paying bigger money for their working dogs. And then all of a sudden, across your land, started making 300 bucks, And they started paying fifteen grand for their dogs. Yeah. And the price of feed of steers hit 3 bucks, and then paying more for their dogs. And now... Feed of steers, you can get a you can get a forward contract now out to September for six dollars twenty for a feed of steer. So 
So you think back when people were getting two dollars for their feed of steers and they're paying ten thousand for their dogs, where well, they're getting more than three times that amount for their cattle. And dogs are same. And 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 guess what? Working dogs are starting to make thirty grand now. Yeah. It's all just on par. Like the 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 price of working dogs never goes up before the price of livestock goes up. So the farmers make the money first. And then with their spare cash, they pay that for the dogs. So when you consider what the top end farmers are making now, the top end dogs are just going up one step behind that. So, so what farmers, are, what the top end farmers are paying for dogs, is the same, maybe even less than what they were probably worth five or six years ago. So it's great for us because wages haven't gone up at that same pace so back back then five or six years ago maybe uh, an overseer assistant manager type person was getting 40 50 grand a year well probably that same overseer assistant manager person now might be getting 70 or eighty thousand a year so and and contract wages haven't gone up so so the people most people who are training the dogs and working the dogs it seems like a lot of money because our wages haven't gone up at the same rate as what the the sheep and cattle market has gone up. So, so to us, it's huge money. Yeah. But in in relative terms, what the livestock are worth, it's pretty much on par. Definitely, I think it's you put it a great way. In, in great detail, mate. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> um. Yeah. Question here from Chris Egan. You obviously you guys were talking before about breeding and you know some of those original good dogs that your dad had that you've then bred on from. You've had great consistent line bred base in your working dogs. What are you looking for when selecting an outside sire to get your work done and move forward in your breeding? Yeah, mostly um, if I'm choosing an outside sire or any sire for that matter, it's first and foremost. I'm looking for just a, a strong cow dog, really. Like uh, the the sheep and yard side of it doesn't really come into the equation when I'm looking for a sire. Even though I do equal parts sheep and cattle work, I, I, I'm really just looking for something that's strong and silent on cows with just that just that calm presence about it. And aside from that. I don't like deviating from the lines that I've got too much. Every, I've had very little success with outcrosses. So, like with complete outcrosses, it's, it's very seldom that I like the pups. And I, I, and I keep minimum two pups out of every litter I breed. I don't breed that many litters. But um, I'm only breeding because I actually want those pups. So... so I'm, I am keeping and and starting multiple pups from every litter and just the, the consistency that I get sticking to the lines that I've got and that I know works well for me and and uh, if I am choosing a, something that is an outcross, I, I will be looking back through that pedigree and just seeing what similar dogs might be there a few generations back if there are any and... and um, as long as that dog is that good, strong dog and the temperament that I like, 
and also I probably judge the owner of the dog a fair bit. Yep. If it's uh, if the if I think the owner of the dog is similar to me and has a similar tasting dogs to me and a similar working style to me, then there's a fairly good chance that they're going to have the similar style of dogs to what I like as well. Whereas if the owner of the dog, even though they might be doing the same style of, like they might be working British bred cows and, and sheep the same as me, if they're a different sort of style of person to me, then they're probably going to have a different style of dogs to me as well. So yeah, I, I've been sort of fairly heavy on the Glen Faber and McElroy lines, aside from like, my dad's lines as well, and, and a fair bit of Capri in there as well. Um, and that's worked really well for me over over the last 10 or so years. Um, may, maybe one bloodline that I'm very interested in at the moment is the Tundabardi dogs of Rod Cavills. I sort of, um, I've seen a bit of AO. In recent years, he got he's got some very nice dogs in that Elvis and Snip, and and um, been asking him a bit about them, and he's been telling me all about these bun, um, Tundabardi dogs with Rod Cavills, and I really need to get down to Victoria and have a look at them. They're really good dogs. And anyway, I met Rod last weekend at Holbrook Catalog Trial, and had a bit of yarn to him, and and yeah, he sounds he sounds apart like he like the way he talks about dogs is the way I like dogs, and. Um, and I think I saw between he run three or four of his dogs and AO ran another Couple. at least two Tundabardi dogs and every single one of those Tundabardi dogs was really nice dogs. I just got around their stock just the way I like them. They, they kept their arc, they squared up, but then when they come, when they did square up, they come in hard, hard bite, but then, but then release that pressure really nice and. AO would end up winning that open final by a long way with Snip. Snips by Grub. Grub and Roxy are the same litter. And it's just generation after generation of really good dogs by the looks of it. So that might be that might be one complete outcross where I would be willing to take that step, even though I haven't really got a whole lot of similarities in the bloodlines, but that might be one outcross I'd consider. Yeah. Awesome. And while you're talking about outcrosses here and, and you mentioned outside dogs, there's a question here from John Pello. Um, have you seen any outside dogs that you really like? Yeah, absolutely. Like heaps. 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 Yeah. yeah. Um, there's heaps of really handy, handy dogs out there. Like there's, there's some unbelievable dogs out there. Um, I think that's admirable like, that you guys actually comment on that for having such success with your, your own dogs and not only with, within yourselves, but obviously within the industry. You know, often speaking for themselves, but to look at other people's dogs and go, "Wow, you know, like I admire them dogs as well." Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So even though uh, Peter says like he's he's pretty strict on um, what type of dogs he likes, it doesn't mean you can't admire other people's dogs. Like yeah. um, people have dogs for different personalities or different um, ways that they work their dogs, and they might like different things, and um, their dogs are still really good. Like. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, they do some pretty impressive things with them. Yeah. I think um, just like Sarah Mortimer summed it up the other day in the chat with her, like, it's the team that you're looking at, that yeah. that dog handler team. And um, 
some of those some of those really top end dogs, right? I see them. Wow, they are so good. I probably wouldn't be able to handle some of those dogs. They just they'd probably drive me mad. Some of those dogs, I just I love watching them so much, and I appreciate how good they are. But like every every dog requires a different level of attention and training, and and you've got to know what you're what you're capable of and what you're good at and what you like. And and even though I can really appreciate those dogs, and I think I've I've got to get one of these dogs. Uh, sometimes I sometimes I'll buy a pup in and I'll just hate it so much. <laughs> it, it was it's so different to what I've got, and, and maybe I'm not that good a handler of dogs, or maybe I'm just set in a rut and just I can only I only seem to be able to train the style of dog that I like. So I guess you got to like the dog yeah, to, to I train it. To, and, I think uh, you've got to enjoy training the dog. Otherwise it's a, it's a job. Whereas if you actually enjoy, if you like the dog and you enjoy training it, then it's fun. So yeah. that's, yeah. that's the difference. So it could, yeah, you, it could be the best. Like there's been dogs that we've sold that we were like, yeah, this is a really good dog, but it's just something about it that I don't get on with. So <laughs> better that somebody else, gets the dog and they'll love it and it'll be the best dog ever for them. Definitely. You see it happen yes. all the time, don't you? Yeah. Like, it could be a personality clash or, um, yeah, just and it depends what dogs you've got in your team at the time. Like uh, if, if you've uh, got a pretty awesome team around you, then the dogs that you're keeping are, have to be exactly what you want, whereas if you're a bit short on team members, you've sort of got to take in ones that are ha still handy, still very good and still do the job, but um, otherwise you might not have. It just depends on what's happening at the time. Absolutely. So do you guys have an opinion of the influence over um, sire versus dam over litter? I think, it's, I think um, scientifically it's been pretty well proven. It's 50-50. Like you get the same amount of genes from the dog and the bitch. Uh, a lot of people say that you're probably getting more from the bitch. I think that's probably, I, I my opinion of that is I think it's because you've owned the bitch, you know your bitch inside and out, and more often than not, if you're taking a bitch to an outside dog, every time you see something in that pup that is similar to the bitch, you're saying, oh, the bitch, the bitch put that into it. Yeah. But, for, but for all you know, the, like, Could come from the dog and the bitch might be similar in those respects. But, uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think definitely it's 50-50 set of genes going into it. Um, the, the only way I think it would sway one way or the other is how line bred or how inbred either the dog or the bitch is. So if it is if it is a real line bred bitch that you've got and it is generation after generation of the same style of dog coming through, um, it's probably going to just have a more select group of genes is putting in and so all of its genes are going to be coming through pretty strong whereas same on the other side if the dog's really well line bred from a really good breeder that's just breeding generation after generation of consistent dogs maybe it, maybe it might look, appear to have more influence but it's, it's the same amount of genes 50-50 that's from dog and bitch while we're talking about genes have you guys toyed with any ai at all well i've um frozen semen Oh yeah, not in dogs. <laughs> we've uh -huh. um, we've talked about um, freezing semen and 
obviously there's a big debate around whether um, it's worthwhile to freeze semen out of a really good dog or whether you should, obviously if the dog is going to breed on, it should have bred on and you would have good progeny out of it. So, I mean, we haven't frozen any semen and we haven't uh, used uh, any AI, but we've definitely discussed it like everybody else out there. Yeah, yeah like Mars of Megan's, he's... He's consistently throwing the type of dog that, that we like and pretty much every litter that he has we seem to get get pups that we like out of him. So potentially, yeah, we probably should considering it put a bit of semen away from him, but there is um But he's also there, breeding things that we like, so there is not many dogs out there. If you consider if you consider that the dog wasn't your own and you're not biased towards it. Yeah. I can't think of many dogs out there that I would consider would be worth keeping semen from. There's there's such there's so few dogs out there that I would even consider taking a bitch to. Not not that my my dogs are better than theirs, but I just if I'm going to an outside dog, I'm I'm very picky. I think on what dog I'm going to, and and there's just there's so few dogs out there that are outstanding dogs. And also are consistently breeding outstanding pups that a lot of, a lot of people are keeping semen from their own dogs because they obviously love their dogs and, and good for them. But when you look back through dogs in history, there's not that many dogs that have been dead for ten years that you'd be thinking, damn, I wish I wish I had some semen put away from that dog. Like, like there's definitely a few, and and probably old boss of Chris Davidson would have been one of them, but. Not many of us actually got to see that dog work. We're all just hearing stories, and and like some people might say, they get better the longer they've been dead, don't they? So, but the um, same thing goes. Like uh, the if the dogs are that well known, um, they've generally got a fair few progeny or some progeny at least. So, uh, um, um, hopefully, <laughs> they would have something good come out of them, and you would be able to use their progeny to get the same. Yes. But it doesn't, you, I mean, I don't know, it doesn't always work that way. When you, when you look at Kelpies for Cuddle work, people call, talk about the, the Kenny line, which is Glenn Favor Kenny, and he's, he's really stamped that line of dogs in the Cuddle line for Kelpies over the last probably fifth. I mean, he's been dead a year or two now, and, and uh, I don't know how old he was when he was born, but pretty much every, nearly every. <laughs> good cattle dog, every good Kelpie I see has a couple of crosses Kenny in him. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Ben's putting any semen away from him, but that would be one dog that I sort of hope he has put some semen away from to bring him back in the future because he's he's definitely one of those sires that really put his stamp on his progeny and, and been a bit of a game changer, I think, for Kelpie's working cattle. But by and large... There's not many dogs out there that are worth collecting. I don't think. That's cool. That's uh, that's what suits you, right? <laughs> Any advice to someone wanting to purchase their first dog or pup, whether it's through an auction or privately? I mean, if you if you find the right article privately, you're probably going to get it cheaper. Yeah. But the chances of finding that dog privately are lower 
you go to a, you go to a really good reputable auction, you've got 50 or 60 dogs in the catalogue, you get to watch a video, one after the other of every single dog in that catalogue. You've got a phone number that are there that you can talk to every single owner or every dog you're interested in. You get to go to the auction, you get to, you've watched the video, you've got your short list, you've talked to the owner, you get to see them live. If, you, if you're paying a decent amount of money, and that, that decent amount of money might be, if that's your first dog, that might not be very much money, but it's a lot of money to you and you've done your research and it's a lot easier to do that research at an auction. Otherwise, where do you even know where to look? Otherwise, so you, can, you can talk to a few mates and they'll point you in a few different directions, a few different breeders, but often if you're just left school and, and, you're, and you've got a job on a, on a sheep or cattle property and you jumped in the deep end, you just need a dog now. You can't just be getting a pup and, and then 18 months later, you got a dog that's a good dog. You need, you need a dog now. So you're probably just going to have to jump in the deep end and buy something that's already going if you're actually going to get your work done. So definitely talk to people. Um, any, anyone in your area who's a reputable dog person or a breeder, definitely talk to them. And, and I would definitely recommend buying a couple of pups from the get-go because that you're going to bond with them and, and you're going to love them. And if it's your first dog, we all remember when we first got started and no matter what that dog was, those first couple of dogs you own, you just make them into good dogs. Whether they are good dogs or not, you just make them into good dogs. But now, now that we've got so many dogs around us, we get so picky and if they're not sort of exactly what we want, we just move them on, don't we? So definitely get yourself a couple of pups, but you're also going to have to just do your research and, and try and get yourself a going dog, I think, just to get your work done in that job if you're if you're just going to go and if you, and you're in the industry. I think it's really important to just, um, if you are going to buy a pup, to just talk to the people, like talk to people about uh, what what you're after and what sort of work they do with their dogs and what sort of work you're hoping to do and obviously you want that to line up to, uh, for the dog to suit you. So, uh, yeah, the best thing is just to talk to as many people as you can and most people are fairly forward and friendly so they'll help you out. So in terms of, you know, getting a new pup or a new dog, what are your top training tips when getting that new dog? That's a question from Ray Petroni, sorry. I was reading it and, yeah. From her, sorry. Ray Petroni. Uh, yeah, so I think it's really important to um, to bond with your pup. Like, to, if you've got a really good bond with your dog, then it's going to want to do more for you. Like, they, they just give you everything that they've got. Um, so I try to spend a lot of time um, just hanging out with them if I can and, um and then obviously the first sort of training uh, we put on them is uh, balancing and a stop. So once you've got balancing and a stop, you can actually, um, you know, move on from there. They're probably the two most important things to train. And yeah, I like. Yeah, I reckon what you first said. And just take it with you everywhere and make it your best mate. Make it a pet. Make it. So it wants to be. With make you. it. Make it so that you love that dog before you even show it stock. And then no matter what it does on stock, you're still gonna love it and you're just gonna make it happen. So that'd be the first step. Other than that, get yourself 
just a, a small medium sized yard, just a few, few sheep to start with four or five, drop the dog off. First of all, if it does, if it, if it sparks with interest, just get in there and try and, and just try and get it holding stock together, be that on a fence or balance up and, and just go through the steps and, and get yourself to a dog school ASAP. If you've got a pup and you don't know how to train it, get yourself to a dog school. There's so many now. There's no That's excuse. Some, There's no excuse not to do it now. And there's some pretty unbelievable handlers running the dog schools. So it's it's it's, it's all pretty. It's not cool something. It's not something you can just really explain in five minutes how to train a dog. Yeah. Like, Better off to see it and put it into action, and then you'll understand it a bit more. Definitely. Yeah, you guys working, you know, primarily you like your cattle dogs. At what age would you? Um, you mentioned they're finding a, a small to medium-sized yard, um, few sheep. What age would you put your dogs on cattle or your younger dogs? Oh, so we, we start them all out on sheep, um, obviously. Yep. Um, young, around the if, if we'll put them on early, 8 to 12 weeks old and see what they do, but probably wouldn't put them on cattle until 10 to 12 months old and try to get a bit of a handle on them before we um, put them on cattle. And, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily put like an age on when I put them on cattle, but more of a where they're at, where they're just trying. just their ability. So if they can, if I can sort of send them out, and they can, they're pretty comfortable on a medium, like maybe a hundred. If I can send them around a hundred ewes, and they, I can bring them to me, I can stop them, I can call them to me, and I've got a pretty good handle on them out in a paddock situation. Well, then I sort of wanted to be able to do that competently before I put them on cattle. Sometimes that might be six months old. Sometimes it might be 12 months old. But I, just, I don't want to be dropping a young dog off on a mob of cattle, like even even just weaner cattle. If I don't have a handle on them, it's, uh, it's all about building confidence in a dog and, and confidence builds into strength and... If you just got to, if you just let the dog off and it just has no respect for the stock and ends up getting kicked and trampled and carried on, and it's, um, it's not going to be real confident on stock on cattle thereafter, is it? So, um, especially if you've got a more full on type of dog, then you want to have a, I think, a better handle on it before you let it out on cattle. But yeah, I wouldn't put an age limit on it. Just... Just whenever, just whenever I've got a good handle on it. Yep. And how much time would you guys put into training? And would most of it be on the job, or would you set time apart? Um, we we tend to get lots of people coming over our place. We've got a we've got a big shed just next to the house. I've got ten weathers that just hate their lives because they just get pounded. <laughs> How to fight dogs? Yeah, like I would say, um, yeah, probably like minimum once a fortnight. We got a couple of mates coming over, and like today, looked at the forecast last night. It's going to be pretty crappy weather tomorrow, and when got the got those weathers in before it started raining yesterday afternoon, and good mate of mine, Eddie, Chris Edmonds, and and Chris Egan as well, coming out for a couple of hours today. There was nothing else to do because it was raining sideways outside the shed and we just trained pups for, for half a day today. And, and so 
it's, it's probably not that often that I go out my, just by myself training dogs because I've just got always people coming over here training dogs and uh, it makes it a good excuse for me. And, um, and we, we take, because of that, we do tend to just do a fair bit of pup training off stock. And once they're, once they're 12, 18 months old, they just come to work anyway. And there's not much, that much more. You, you bring them back to the training area just to maybe fine tune a few things that are annoying you at work. But yeah, once they're, once they're grown up and they're coming to work, they're, it's 90% just at work thereafter. You're pretty well, as pups, yeah, you're just putting a few sides, you know, balancing out, putting a few sides on, teaching the back, teaching the bark, and and then after that, the rest of it's mostly at work, yeah. I would train dogs a bit more by myself because I wasn't going to take my three kids down in zero degrees to train dogs today. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, although not... I, I will go down if it's not too bad, but I uh, will sometimes go down by myself or Peter and I will sometimes swap, like if it's got really cold weather or something like that. Um, one will go down and then come back and the other one will go. So We used to we used to always just take all the kids down with us and, and alternate. The kids would be running around playing on the rails, but they get pretty bored of it after a while. So <laughs> And they uh, spend so much time going to dog trials and stuff that we try to... I mean, they still do it pretty often. <laughs> yeah. And with your contract work um, and your own work, obviously, do you prefer your dogs to work in a race or alongside the race and why? Uh, I, I prefer them in the race. Um, I think definitely you can get the sheep tighter up the race so I can drench them from the outside than I can from the outside. I, like I can get, well, not all my dogs because I haven't even bothered teaching a lot of the young ones to go do it on the outside, but certainly I'll be Kelly. I can get her to work the outside race pretty effectively, but I just don't, well, I just know that you can't, they will last longer on the outside, but if I'm going to do a day's yard work for someone, I'll take six dogs with me, might work them two at a time, and I'll just be rotating so they're fresh all the time, and I'll just... Yeah, I'll just be sending them up, up the race and, and coming back from and, and just get that race tight as I possibly can and fresh from the outside and just getting as much work as I can, as fast as I can. Just for the, keep the client happy. He's happy we've drenched that many sheep for the day and we've got, or whatever job we're doing, done it nice and effective and, and then rather than working from the outside, it's easier on the dogs, but probably just not getting as much work done in the same period of time. Cool. We've got a question here from um, Nick Hovey, one for each of you. Um, oh, he's asked for Pete first. Pete, what do you believe makes Megan a good handler? <laughs> um, Maybe you got to sleep next to her tonight. Tough question. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Megan, she doesn't get the, the same amount of stock work I do, so so more of her work comes through training and and she she goes to just as many or if not more dog schools what i do and and she she really listens and takes note and and when when someone tells her at dog school that this is a good thing to do she she will come back and do it and um 
and so she she gets a good handle on her dogs that way. Whereas a lot of like my my um, way of training is probably a bit more rough, I guess. I just roughly get in the way I want them and just take them to work and just make them do it. So Megan Megan actually actually just takes note and then, and goes through the steps and and just does what she's learnt. And Megan, what makes Peter the handler? Uh, yeah, so I think he's um, when he think, I think he's been a bit harder on himself. I think he realised that he is um, relatively good at reading um, the pup's body language and like training. So I mean, I know we have a set style of dogs, but the pups are still all pretty different. And so he better he does it better than me. He can um, read sort of what the pup needs. I don't know whether it's just sometimes we go down and train dogs together. Um, not all the time, but um, and the person who's outside, um, whether it's wanted or not, um, gives some helpful tips. <laughs> and so um, I think uh, Peter's good at just seeing what the pup needs, and um, whereas I don't always know uh, what the pup needs until like it's done something that I didn't want it to do. Whereas he's a bit faster to read the situation. Very well answered. Uh, and there's a bit more than the Kobe's questions. Um, also, you've mentioned um, trialing a little bit tonight. Um, where do you see progression in our trials and how do we better ourselves and get more out of our dogs? Yeah, I think uh, I think with trialing, just try and keep it as practical and as close to a real work situation as you can with the facilities you've got and the amount of stock that you've got. Um, yeah, look, I know that, I know that Nick's sort of really into trying to make, like, the, well, he was trying to incorporate a few more obstacles and, um, and working crosses and I'm all for it if it's working, but not just for the sake of it. So if it's a, if it is a catalogue trial, I just... I don't want to make it too like any type of trial. I don't want to make it too complicated just for the sake of being complicated. I want to make it doable, but still tough. Like yeah. not everyone, not everyone should just be able to get around a course of any type of trial. So you want the time limit to be doable, but short enough to make you get a move on. Like I don't, you shouldn't be able to just camp at an obstacle and, and run down the clock and still get a good score. You should have to work them around the course. In yard trials, or there's, like certainly I've, I've noticed in recent years, it's just been um, a few more little bits and pieces getting added to trials, and and seems to be people want the trials to be bigger, bigger pickup areas, and and making it harder um, in the in the sort of the, the outside areas of a yard dog trial. In my opinion, is a yard trial is a yard dog trial. How often it work? Are you working ten sheep? through a big yard where they're trying to break out around some little winding peg or something like that in the yards. Like you're working big numbers of stock. You send your dog back, you push, you bring it up, you push, push, push. And I think a yard dog trial should be, should be hard. Like it should be hard work, not fancy work. If you want it, if you want that, like if you want a utility dog, organize yourself a utility trial rather than try and turn a yard dog trial into a utility trial. 
Utility, utility trials are great, but there's just not many of them. Whereas there's thousands of yard dogs or hundreds of yard dog trials that you can go to. And I think people just want their paddock dogs to be good at yard dog trials. Whereas I think yard dog trials should be really um, reward the good yard dog more than the good paddock dog. Not to say that they, like they're only yard dogs, like they often are capable of doing like yards and other things but um yeah like if the trial's hard then it really shows off the good dogs who get the job done yeah and at that at that last catalog trial we were talking to nick um there was there was the opportunity to cross your dog and, and you didn't have to leave the pickup square if you didn't want to and i think it was uh just justin mcdonald and he put, put the whole put the sheep around the whole course from his pickup square in lever and it was pretty good to watch and he had to really to really appreciate the handle that he had on his dog but um i can't do it I, I, I can really appreciate people doing that but i just i don't want trials to be designed like that just for the sake of it i just want to keep them as practical as possible and really try to replicate real life work as much as possible. Beautiful. Fantastic. So how long have you guys been trialing for and why do you trial? Um, well, I started trialing cause I busted my knee playing footy. Uh, I, just, I mean, I always loved my dogs and I thought, well, I'll give this a crack. And I think I might've done my first trial once about 23, maybe. 35 now, but for those first two or three years, I was, I was just doing Blaine Show and Bathurst Show, and that was all I'd do. And, and, I was, and then I just sort of very slowly progressed from there. And, um, still, we, to this day, we don't do much traveling. We've got, I think we can do eight yard trials within an hour at home, and we might do 10 or 12 trials a year, uh, yard trials that is, and maybe travel a little bit more for the opportunity to do a catalogue trial. I, I, I was going to say, you're it. at the other end of the state yeah. one week and then at the opposite end the next. Um, yeah, four hours down to Holbrook Forest to get to that catalogue trial, which is great. Um, we are starting to travel a bit more now um, to trials, like not ridiculous distances, but um, yeah, just try to get to a few more. Okay. And what do you guys take away from trialling? I, I love the competition. Yeah, so we're um, so I I didn't actually I sort of fell into trialing. I when we were only know, back in the day before we had kids, I had this crazy idea that I wanted to do something fun with Peter, and so we tried to play pairs tennis, and Peter's experience <laughs> that didn't work real well because I'm not good enough here. Um, so uh, yeah, he just started trialing, and he didn't want to play mixed netty or anything like that. So I said, right, I'll well, um, dog trialing so that we can do something. And yeah, it's, we're, yeah, we're both pretty competitive now. Yeah. That's a shame, mate. You're pretty tall. You could be a good goal shooter there, mixed netball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. You didn't want to it's, uh, it's pretty addictive trialing. It's, uh, it's very rewarding. Uh, it gives it's really you- It's social, like so good going out and catching up with people and seeing everyone and seeing some pretty cool dogs as well like you get to go out and 
see people, all people's dogs and what people are doing with their dogs as well is pretty impressive and you don't really get to see it unless you're sort of out out there amongst it all. So it's yeah. pretty good mates now in the trial world. So it's cool. And it gives you, it gives you a target, I think, yeah, it with, does. With, yeah. a young, with a young dog. It gives you a target to say, all right, I've got this dog. He's, he's, he's really starting to hit his straps. He's coming up 12 months old and think, right, hey, well, there's a trial coming up in a couple of months and I'm going to set a target to be able to get this dog to be able to maybe be competitive, but certainly put him around that course. And so, so you train it and you, you know that you're going there, you're going to be on show, people are watching, you don't want to embarrass yourself. So you, you actually make the effort to make that dog better than what he might have been if, if, if you weren't trialing you just, just give it relax, if, you, if you if i wasn't trialing i probably wouldn't push the dogs as hard as what i do and uh i think the dogs definitely end up better for it i can i can sort of position them a lot better than what i would have otherwise and do more with them. and just do more with them and, and they just make my life at work a lot easier because i've got that better control on them that i put on there to trial do you guys have a favourite trial or one you'd like to participate in? <laughs> do, you, do you want to think about that? So I've got two. I, I was um I was in parkour. I really liked the like the um yeah, how they pick up as well as the yard trial. It really made the trial because it was really hard and the dogs really had to cover um and hold their sheep together well out there. But then they also needed plenty of push to get through the yard. So I think that was a really good um really good test of a dog um, of all their capabilities but I, I do love Bathurst it's uh it's always a really tight time limit and there's just so many places for something to go wrong <laughs> at a trial so you don't there's no way you'll um jag two good runs like you have to you have to be really on ball and have two good runs together to win like you you deserve it if you win yeah car call for his first trial was pretty unreal and that the but the first pickup was really the defining uh, yeah, that's what thing it. about Carkle trial. It was a really tough. It was hard. First pickup with really some hard. with some really pokey corners that if you let the sheep get the, get around the corner, it was it not easy getting them back. Yeah. And then and your dogs had to cover. Like, but the rest. Well. But once you did that first pickup, the rest of the trial wasn't massively challenging. The truck the truck was sort of hit and miss. Sometimes the sheep wanted to come off it. Sometimes they didn't. But with Bathurst, every part of that trial is like as far as really a yard dog trial goes, it's is so tough. First pickup, really you hard. see you see a lot of good handling, good dogs retire on that first pickup, even though it's not a big pickup. It's just they break back really hard. Heavy, heavy sheep. That for the first half of it, they're breaking back. Then you get them in the mouth of the gateway, and and people spend the next five minutes just trying to get them to move for three meters, and they just can't get them move they get them in there and then they can't get them up the race we always try and put enough sheep in there so it's tough to fill the race at bathurst and then you do that and you get through the draft and then you get them on the getting them on the truck is not that bad getting them off sometimes it's just near impossible task and by then eight minutes is just about run out it's, it's a big area at bathurst and a couple of different pickup areas and and then you finally get to the put away and the sheep are just jammed in there and you're walking down trying to clear your gateway and they just won't shift and 
and they start circling around and there's just every single part of the Bathurst show can bring you unstuck. So you just never, you're never home and hosed at Bathurst show. It's a tough trial. Well, that the hard way. Blaine, Blaine show as well. It was a great trial. <laughs> and do you guys each have like a, a special um, most uh, memorable moment in, in a trial? Or trial? Yeah, yeah winning, winning the Blaney show this year. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> One, winning the novice and the open on the same day. Usually, um, usually Chris Stapleton wins that nine out of ten. And any trial designed by Chris is a great trial. They don't, they're not big areas, and you look at them and you think, oh yeah, that's not too bad. And you get out there, and it's pretty hard. He has a knack of designing a trial and making it tough, and. Uh, yeah, so Blaney's one of them. It's it's my it's our local trial, and I love it. And a lot of people come and, and try it out and, and don't do very well, but it's it's a great little trial. Um, aside from trialing, um, probably probably um, when I sold Ninja at Gerildery, that was my first sort of dog that I got a decent amount of money for, and that sort of blew my mind. I just didn't really realize the value of them before that i'd sold dogs before that but just for a couple of grand and and it was just what i thought they were worth and 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 when he made nineteen thousand back then it was uh 2019 so we're just coming out of that well we're still in the middle of a really bad drought and, and that money helped us out a lot like we were we were spending so much money on feed at the time we were we were facing some really difficult decisions of we we're paying a lot of money for all our lease and adjustment fees and and on top of that paying huge paying huge money for feed bills every couple of weeks and and we were sort of at the point where we're we're probably just going to have to to sell a lot of our breed like we'd only kept a few breeders but um yeah it was going to really cut in and be really hard to get out of that and and that sort of really got us out of a bind there. And and so from then on, that sort of set the precedent. I thought he was a dog that I wouldn't usually sell, but uh, there, was, there was not much work on because everyone had sold all their stock. And yeah. and I just didn't, he was part of my team. And I just decided, well, I don't need, I, he had a hell of a lot of work in him, that dog. And I decided, well, I don't need this dog right now, I'm gonna sell him. And uh, getting such a good result there, sort of set the precedent <clears throat> that now if I take a dog to an auction, it's got to be a dog that you can take to work tomorrow and get your work done with. So, so I really make the effort now after that to take that dog to work with me pretty much every time I take go to work, you know, these couple of months leading up to the, the auction and make sure that they're right and that the, the person should be very happy with that dog and get their money's worth at the auction. and. And it seems to have um, worked out for us now. We seem to get plenty of interest in our dogs that we're selling, and, and it's been a really good thing. So my, got a couple probably. I, haven't, I mean, I haven't accomplished that much in the trialing world, to be honest. But um, yeah, probably winning the open on the weekend was a pretty big deal. After spending the whole night until four a.m. in emergency with my daughter, so I had one hour's sleep. I'm pretty sure I wasn't really thinking properly. And um, to go out and win, like have two really good runs against some really good other competitors um, was pretty cool. So that was my first open win. And the other 
trialing accomplishment was uh, we went down to the Manfredstone River Festival at Koryong this year and um, they run the catalogue trial under lights um, in the rodeo arena and it's a pretty cool trial actually. And I made the finals there and I've done like, that's like my third catalogue trial ever. Yeah. Um, and so I made the finals there and I um, came third in the finals. So, I mean, it's not a win, but I came third and just a, it was just a pretty unreal experience. There was like 4,000 people watching. Um, so I, was, I was pretty nervous, I won't lie. <laughs> so yeah that one was uh pretty cool as well how do you handle your nerves i mean usually i wouldn't get that nervous like usually it's not four thousand. and i mean at the rodeo arena like the it's a tiered hill and everything like there was four thousand people and you could see four thousand people um and also like i said i've done like three catalog trials so i was yeah, I thought I was going to throw up. <laughs> but I'm fine in the, I was okay in the first round, like a little bit nervous, but for the final, yeah, I was really nervous. But um, it's just a sort of experience thing. Like uh, I used to get extremely nervous before a run, but now, like in the finals especially, I still get nervous, but I don't know, I just sort of try to take a deep breath and get on with it, I guess, because the dogs can feel it. Like if you're really nervous, they sort of, step it up a notch and you don't always want them to do that <laughs> so um yeah i don't i don't know how to handle nerves really but just try to take a deep breath and calm down and um actually it was ben costa told me when i was really nervous once he said maybe try after every obstacle to just take a breath and think about what you're doing next rather than just rushing into it so um that was actually pretty cool advice so i try to just like not think about what's happened before and take a breath and think about what you're going to do before you do it and um don't rush around just try to i mean obviously you're still you're still on the go it's like when i say take a breath like it's only for a few seconds but it helps <laughs> so yeah it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, about though now probably the biggest accomplishment accomplishment is um just having the having the team that I've got to no matter who brings me up, whatever job it is, I'm just to, to have the team of dogs by and large with bread that I can just say yes to any job and, and just be able to go out with confidence and just do whatever job is at hand. And yeah. then probably part of that buying a farm is a pretty big deal. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we had a deposit for a farm and then the epic drought hit us and we were, um, we, yeah, we, pretty tough actually and so to actually come through and buy it was a pretty big deal we've been trying to save up and strive to do it for a long time so so wow. we still run this country as well but now we actually own a small amount well wow, that's awesome congratulations and uh, hard work pays off right yeah hopefully <laughs> and in your travels um when you're getting around in uh, to different trials what's one thing that you guys notice that people struggle with Looking after kids for us. <laughs> oh, yeah. When both of us are trialing and you've got three little girls under six, um, especially if you're both in an open final and, and you, it's towards the end of the day, they're getting tired, they haven't had to sleep and just um, trying to concentrate with kids crying in the background and Megan will be out going for a run. I'll be trying to entertain a kid to keep him quiet, but yeah. 
when you're out there running your dog and you can hear your kid crying, it is fairly distracting. So trying to block that out, that's... Uh, I can't block it out very well. I remember I misdrafted at Gundagai in the final because Georgie was screaming right there in the grandstand in my ear. But I just wanted to be like, Peter, <laughs> get that kid away. But, I mean, yeah. the damage was done, so... <laughs> There we go. We need more uh, kid binders at our trials. Anyone out there? Um, (laughs) Come out there. Be prepared to look after a kid. (laughs) And people are great. People are good. People do help us out. Like people find themselves getting the kids just thrown in their lap and (laughs) with no warning and just us walking away. No, yeah, people are pretty good. Like most people know us around, and people are happy to help you out. But um, I don't know what other people struggle with. Oh, I mean, there's plenty of things that people struggle with. I think that they um. I, like I try to be and I think that plenty of other people do to answer people's questions or because um, there's a lot to take in with trialing like it's it's not just like working um, at home like it's there's a lot more to it so um, yeah I think like I, I mean I'm sure that people struggle with plenty of things like nerves and wrapping your head around exactly what you've got to do and things like that so I think um, it's important to like most people are really friendly if you ask them I think if you just start, if you're if you're just starting out or you're or you're an encouraged level worker, it's just um, knowing what homework to do on your dog and what training yeah. needs to be done. Like it's not trials don't exactly replicate real work, and it's not just a matter of sending your dog back, push, 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 and I'll go out the race. Like that. You're going to get a sheep backwards, you're going to get a sheep jammed, and, and you just got to learn to be able to get your dog to work off, go all the way around off balance to one side, feather that lead, and all the way around back the other side and feather that lead, work off your hip, and just and try and um, recognize what sheep are going to be the leaders and, and be able to get your dog to push up on that particular sheep with just the right amount of force and, and then be able to, and just to sort of create leaders is probably the hardest thing that. Um, um, beginner trials, trialers struggle with, I think. Um, just getting that off balance work. Like so many people have got really good, so many beginner workers have got really good dogs and they get around their stock really nice until you get into an unnatural environment like a trial where you've got this stupid gate in the middle of an arena where you're trying to get the sheep through and there's. Which is not what would be the case. And, uh, so. and sheep are running yeah. behind the gate and the dog just keeps on doing it wrong because it's just balancing up. And so you've really got to get that off balance work down pat at home. And it's got to be, it's got to be really good at home to be pretty good in a trial. You got to be able to, like, if you can do it 10 times out of 10 right at home, you'll get it 50% of the time in a trial. So you just got to get it. It's just knowing just those little one percenters, I think. And, and there's, there's a lot, there's a lot better people than me at trial. And we've only had mild success at trialing. We just, like doing it but um yeah you watch the best people and um and they just create layers like i love watching chris stapleton trial like do do yard dog trials he manages to um he uses momentum on the stock and uh he just keeps bump, he'll just bump the right sheep get them in and, and then in his forces where nobody else can get a leader he'll just make it happen and he just he can he's a he must be a fantastic reader of his stock and he just knows which exactly where to put his stock just to get that lead and once he's got it he just keeps him trickling in there he's not over or under doing anything and uh, if you watch those really top handlers 
Um, and do so, it when you're sitting next, like if you're not really, like if you still don't understand how it's happening, sit next to someone who does understand um, and get them to talk you through it. Like when some of those unbelievable handlers are out there, like sit next to someone else and say, can you just explain to me um, what they're doing here? And and most people will, like the, if they know if they know what's happening, they'll explain it and it would help you understand a bit better. Because there is an element of luck to trialing, but not as much as most beginner people think. Like a lot of people say, oh, geez, he was lucky to get that sheep just to run up there. But no, no, he made no, it later. No, those better handlers, they create those situations yeah. that make it look They luck. create their own luck. Take yeah. Quick little story of Chris Stapleton there, made a uh, final error at um, Oberon that he judged. Come out there and he goes, uh, good luck Dan, you got this, you go, good, just go, any advice? He goes, do what you did in the first run. Anyways, in the pickup, sheep broke four times, finally get around, and he goes, that was the same same sheep four times. What are you doing? I go, oh, they all look the same to me, Chris. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but there's a stop in the goes, he knew exactly which sheep I wasn't working right. You're right. Oh, yeah. yeah, very good at reading stock and knowing which one's going to break out and calling his dog to the spot, you know, like it's, it's pretty impressive to watch. Any advice to someone wanting to come into the ag industry? Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? Just do it. <laughs> I think it is. There's plenty of jobs out there. Like every, I mean, every industry at the moment is crying out for staff, but ag is as well. And if you want to get into it, just, um, just jump in like if you're if you're keen enough people will give you a job and especially if you get a good boss to help you there's help just, you out there's, there's so many so, jobs around so much work out there that um you could you could just take your pick you just say well if you got it in your head that you want to work cattle go on a place that's got cattle if you want to work sheep if you don't really know what you want to work go on go on a place that's got both it's got both yeah like there's like there's plenty of mixed farming operations that run cropping sheep and cattle in big numbers and and they're screaming out for employees so yeah if you if you want to get a job in agriculture and you haven't got one you're in a position of power because there's so much work out there so uh, figure that's... out figure out what you want to do and do it if you haven't figured out what you want to do but you just think you want to do it then just go and do it on a place that runs all those different things and then see what you like and, and, you'll, and you'll, you'll pretty quickly realize that you like one thing better than the other and maybe next year go and find a place that's got what you want but just if you want to do it just do it because there's so much work out there and you've got nothing to lose fantastic advice and is there anyone that hasn't been on dog talk yet that you would like us to have a chat with uh ben crow would be a good one yeah he's got, got glenn faber working kelpies been very influential bloodline on my kelpies and and just kelpies for cattle in general peter crow as well they're brothers um rod, rod cabell yeah, i'd like he, he's someone yeah. i don't know very much about but i've recently taken a liking to his dog so i wouldn't mind hearing a bit about him. from him ao would be pretty cool to hear from just when he comes back when he's back if you're listening to us over there in uh ireland they uh, good luck mate and uh, congratulations <laughs> on the wedding yeah, I mean, and yeah, well, that too. But yeah, he'd uh, he would be able to give a pretty good um, contrast of working dogs in the UK compared to here. His old man runs Collies, he runs Kelpies, and 
yeah, he, he probably would be the he most obviously daunting. has a pretty good handle on his dogs. So, <laughs> yeah, he'd be um, Anyone, anyone more like the Hodgkinsons? He interviewed the interview the other day. No, that was, was that was so good. He, I'd love to hear more about more people like that. But maybe over there it's a bit different. They're so passionate about their dogs. There's not they have such good handle on them. There's not many people in Australia that talk with that much passion about their dogs. No, as what they do. no, they were amazing to listen to. So, what was that? No, that was I was awesome. just going to say um, that time of the night uh, question. Was there a question that stood out for you tonight? And I'll win a bag of Enduro Plus high energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Which one do you like? Nick. Nick's question. Nick Hovey. Well, there you go, Nick. Um, shout out. Just send us your details. A bag of Enduro Plus coming your way. Also, thanks uh, to Megan and Pete. You also have a bag of Enduro coming your way. Um, I'll sort that out for you guys. <laughs> no dramas. I'm sure I know your address one now. <laughs> yeah. So. Thank you for jumping on. Really, really appreciate it. And to all of our listeners with their questions. But we're not going to let you go that easy. And we're going to split it up tonight. We've had a question come in here that we're going to aim at Peter. <laughs> but Megan is going to get Laura's question to start with. So, Megan, one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? Yes. So I, I don't even I've thought about this and I still don't know. Oh. I guess one one might be easy to handle. I don't know. I don't know whether it would be or not, but at least there's only one. <laughs> Twenty is a lot. Ducks taste better than horses, anyway. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and Pete, and, and Pete you, you actually look nervous for this one. <laughs> you, you mentioned before. Uh, well, Megan mentioned Benny Costa before, so we haven't had this one here before. But there's a question here from Chris Egan. All right, multiple choice. You can think about it. When you beat Ben Costa in the arm wrestle, was it a result of? A, sorry, I'm going to laugh this whole thing. Um, supplementing your diet for weeks leading up to it. B, catching Ben on a day off. C, you're just really good at arm wrestling. Or D, all of the above. Uh, I was going to say all of the above, but I don't think I um, supplement my diet too much. <laughs> I think maybe maybe the first time I beat him might have been caught him on day off. <laughs> the next time he had he, there's nowhere to hide, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, on that, guys, thank you very much for your time tonight. We had a great time. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it as well. And to all our viewers out there, thanks for tuning in. And please remember, we learn every day, and the day we stop learning is a sad one for all of us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Cheers, guys.